Well, it's that time again for us to take up the Word of God together and to uh, study, to show ourselves approved. And I'm very excited because we're in a new chapter this morning in the book of Ecclesiastes and our ongoing study of this wonderful, wonderful book, a treatise, actually. And just to set the stage for our study this morning, I want to say that there are moments in our evangelistic settings when after we have poked holes in the walls of people's ideological fortresses to show them that the best of human thinking falls far short of God's glory, that their wisdom cannot save them from their sin, as we learned last week, because no one does good, not one. And after we have shown them logically that this is the case, as the sage has done many times over in this wonderful treatise, It's not unusual for our non-Christian listeners to want to turn the tables on us and ask us to prove our worldview to be correct. So what do you believe? What does your view say about life? They'll, They'll want to know how we carry on in a cruel and harsh world and interpret our surroundings with this sharp focus of a biblical lens. Fair enough. I remember years ago visiting a young man in prison at the request of his grandmother, who happened to be a member of my church. Oh, pastor, he's really a nice guy, she explained. He was just at the wrong place at the wrong time. He needs Christ. Can you visit him and talk to him about the gospel? Now, I don't usually visit people uh, anywhere unless I'm or get a warm warm invite from them, especially to talk to them about the gospel. But in this case, I made an exception. The prison was minimum security. It was in New Bedford. And the young man had lots of freedoms. So I introduced myself. We sat down, and the first thing out of his mouth, as soon as he heard that I was a pastor, was, my grandmother sent you and put you up to this, didn't she? I told him that she loved him, and she wanted him to come to the truth. And he appreciated it and the visit, but he just wasn't interested in talking about the gospel. Fair enough, I said. And then I used the Socratic method of questioning to get him to the place where he would be interested in talking about the gospel. I started in with something like this. By the way, um, do you believe in in any God? Oh, I I guess I do, he said. Oh, a, a higher power perhaps somewhere out there, I asked. Yes, he replied somewhat tentatively. A force, you might say. Hmm. And then I led him question by question to see just how ludicrous his belief in this force, this God was. I said, this force, is it male or female? Well, he said, I I don't know. Well, does it believe that murder is wrong? Well, of course murder is wrong. Everyone knows that, he shot back. Yes, but does your God specifically tell you this? And how does it distinguish from uh, murder from killing in self-defense or in a time of war? Is war wrong? He couldn't say. After a few more questions, uh, at which he could only shrug his shoulders, I then asked him, does this God of yours have a set of beliefs, a doctrine, that it's 
that it reveals to you so that you know for sure how you're supposed to think and behave. He said, no. Is your God personal then? He wasn't sure. Does it promise you anything? He said, no. Well, how do you know if it approves of what you're doing? Does it punish your wrongdoing? Does it bless you for your righteous acts? And while we were at it, I asked him, does it define morality? Does it define righteousness? Or does it teach you about sin and guilt and and how to deal with those things? After a long while of no, 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 I don't know, I'm not sure, no, I could see that he was becoming exasperated and quite embarrassed that an intelligent guy like himself was saying such ridiculous things. And it wasn't long after that that his exasperation led him to ask me, okay, enough about what I believe. What do you believe on this stuff? I replied with a smile, I'm glad you asked. And I took up my Bible and showed him what I believed, visit after visit, for the next two months. You might be good at poking holes in the walls of satanic fortresses, beloved. Maybe you're a fan of the Socratic method of argumentation and you use it to transform your, criti- your critical opponent- opponents of the faith to honest-to-goodness truth-seekers who now have a willingness to know. The question is, are you ready to give them the right godly wisdom from the word? And equally important, are you prepared to demonstrate what that wisdom look like, looks like in the, amid the same kinds of pressures and trials and uncertainties and sufferings of life? That's a fair question. Both of them are fair questions. Evangelism calls for a proclamation of the gospel, and it also calls for a lifestyle to back it up. And we have encountered this twofold application of the sage here in Ecclesiastes in his work here and there, and we will many times again through the rest of this book. It's that important. So in chapter 8, chapter 8 is one of those times. In verses 1 to 9, the sage shows us how to answer with and live truth to the skeptic by demonstrating how worldly wisdom and godly wisdom act very differently in the same difficult context one that is just as familiar to us, by the way, as it was to his first century audience then, and that is government. Government. So here's the thrust. Now, I've published this for you so that uh, we can work through this with ease. Uh, It's a mouthful. Be ready, the sage says, to demonstrate godly wisdom to unbelievers and how it provides the answers to life, especially under corrupt government, where it directs us to submit to it because of God's solemn word that established it, his promise to work for our good in it, and his ultimate and sovereign rule behind it. Now let me open this up. Let's let's actually open it up together. The first part of that idea comes in verse 1, and it's very much expressed as a call to action. And I want you to to get this. This is is crucial. A call to action. 
Be ready to demonstrate godly wisdom to unbelievers and how it provides the answers to life. The sage does this by raising two questions, you'll notice, right in verse 1. The first one is, who is like the wise? And in order to appreciate this question, we need to understand that the wise in this verse is not the worldly wise, since the sage already spent all of chapter 7 showing us the futility of worldly wisdom. No, it is the godly wise now that he focuses our attention on, the person who's been born from above the sun, who has adopted an above-the-sun worldview, or as the sage has described him many times over, the one who pleases God, who has God at the center of his life. We can understand the, the question really to be asking, who among fallen humanity under the sun is like the godly wise? That's really what he's asking. And the answer, of course, is no one. No one under the sun is like the godly wise. Now, godly wisdom takes center stage again. And this godly wisdom is a really a body of information that God meant for his people to live by. It's the faith, as Jude talks about uh, later in the New Testament. It's to be applied to all situations in our lives. It comes from above the sun, from God himself. It is the word, the scriptures. And the sage would have, oh, he would have quite a bit of the Old Testament scripture available to him at this time in history. So to flesh this out a bit more, the sage says, excuse me, uh, it is quite clear that no one under the sun who operates by an under the sun worldview can ever be like the one who has been born from above the sun, who embraces God himself and devoted to living by God's wisdom. No one. The traditional wisdom of Israel that we find in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says it best. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. The straight path is a figure for a righteous path, which God guarantees to those who walk by his statutes. If at any time we should turn from these statutes and trust our own understanding, which, by the way, is part of that lingering human wisdom that's not completely flushed out of our system and flares up in our minds like acute back pain, then we veer off our godly course. But those who are outside of a relationship with Christ cannot help but go their own way, cannot help but be off course. Therefore, they go down a crooked way. No one is like the godly wise. The second question is logically related to the first, and it comes in the second clause of verse 1. Who knows the explanation of things? Or, who knows the answers to life, which is closer to the truth. The idea here is, who can explain all that he sees in life? Who can understand the cadence, its mysteries, its realities? To say this in more general terms, who knows the reasons behind all of those nagging why questions? People ask them all the time without resolving them in their minds. So much of life remains a mystery to them, but this is not true for the Christian. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that Christians know everything there is to know about life, or even 
the many specific answers to all those why questions that arise out of tragedies and dark times? No, of course not. But we do know the overarching answer to all those why questions, and that is a sovereign God has a plan to bring about his glory and his good or the good of his people. That's the overarching answer to all the why questions. He's ordained everything in life, including events that make us scratch our heads and ask why. And we can respond very quickly and sanely to them with this overarching answer. God is the primary cause of them. He ordained them from eternity past. His purpose for them is to bring himself much glory and us much good and in that order. And that, beloved, is enough to keep us sane from depression, from giving up the fight, from losing heart. I'll illustrate how this works. We don't know when human history will come to an end in God's eschatological timetable or exactly who he'll use as instruments to bring about those end-time cataclysmic events. We just know that history will definitely draw to a close and God will at that time judge the living and the dead. That's what we know, for sure. Our London Baptist Confession of Faith gives a wonderful explanation in chapter 32, paragraph 3, of this event and how our general knowledge of it becomes our wisdom in living now in anticipation of it. Here's what it says. Quote, Christ desires that we be firmly convinced that a day of judgment will come, both to deter everyone from sin and to comfort the godly more fully in their adversity. For this reason, he has determined to keep the day secret, to encourage people to shake off any fleshly security and always to be watchful because they do not know the hour when the Lord will come. And so they may always be prepared to say, Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. End quote. Isn't that wonderful? That's right. And when we know and are confident of end-time truth, the particulars leading up to it are of little consequence to us. It doesn't matter. We just live in light of it, soberly, cautiously, aggressively, depending on God, depending on the Holy Spirit, and in a manner of thanksgiving. Now, the last clause of verse 1 is the sage's reason, really, why he states so boldly that no one is like the godly wise, and no one knows the answers to life, but the godly wise. He says, a person's wisdom illuminates his face and makes his stern face brighten up. <laughs> Think of Moses and how his face glowed, right, after being in the presence of God. The godly wise rely on God's wisdom to curb any sinful motives that would drive them to act hastily and foolishly in life. God's truth applied makes my stern face brighten up. It helps, it helps me to put off sinful determinations and to put in their, on in their place godly ones. And when we remind ourselves of what God has ordained in his wisdom, any hardness of heart that might motivate us to lash out or at other people or our surroundings is instantly quelled. 
And we're able to perceive the situation as God does and then act wisely. Who's like the godly wise? No one. No one under the sun. Now, what I've just shown you from verse 1 are facts. They're facts about the godly wise. No one is like him. Only they can know the answers that really matter to life's questions. And that with that wisdom, they can maintain control over their countenance and act wisely. Those are facts. It's truth. But more importantly is how the sage presents this truth. And that's what I want you to see. Notice that he doesn't just raise questions here. He uses rhetorical questions. Rhetorical questions don't need to be answered. They have the answer built in to them. That's a rhetorical question. The rhetorical question can at times be more effective in impacting our listeners than simple statements. They are meant to call the listener to consider what's been said and that what's been said is true. Paul used them for his purposes. For example, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Not only is the answer no, but anybody who would say yes would be totally embarrassed. That would bring strong conviction on anyone who thought that God's grace allowed them to sin freely. Oh, no. Paul says to the Corinthians who were developing unhealthy attractions to their favorite Bible teachers, do you remember this in chapter 1? Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So it's, it's more than just stating facts. It says, can you see how dumb this is? This is ludicrous. Why would you even think that? Paul is a a string of them in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 to 34. It's designed to engage his audience with biblical truth and convince them of how vitally important it is for a strong Christian walk. Are you ready? Here, here they are. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him over for all of us, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring charges against God's elect. God is the one who justifies. Who is, who is the one that condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, but rather was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Can you see how these questions are designed to shake people up who perhaps are doubting, or maybe they're struggling? It grips you it, 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 it grabs you by, by both shoulders and shakes you hard and causes you to engage in what's being said, leading you to the right answer, like a schoolmarm who wants to teach you the right way. In Ecclesiastes 8.1, the sage uses the rhetorical question to engage his audience, to stimulate them to consider what he's saying. And these two rhetorical questions can even make godly wisdom attractive when fallen under the sun dwellers are forced to think honestly about how it differs from their worldly wisdom. This is certainly true in light of the treatment that he gave worldly wisdom back in chapter 7. He spends time there showing how deficient worldly wisdom is, and then in chapter 8, verse 1, who is like the godly wise? 
Are you seeing this? He challenges his audience, gets them to think. And we would do well to do the same. After some dialogue with unbelievers over their worldly wisdom and their lifestyle and showing it to be deficient to save them from their sin, we can call them to think soberly about salvation. How reliable, Jim, is belief system that you have when truth is relative? How smart is it to have blind faith, a faith that is not based on reason and fact, and acts on the unknown? How wise is it to trust your entire life and destiny to chance? Can anyone know the future apart from God who has decreed it? If we expect our justice system to punish evildoers, should we not expect a holy God to be even more judicious? Obviously, the sage wants to get into their heads, into the heads of his readers with the truth, so he uses the rhetorical questions to engage him. Now, the next part of our main idea says this. A great context in which to demonstrate how godly wisdom differs from worldly wisdom is corrupt government, where godly wisdom calls us to submit to it for three good reasons. Now, at this point, sage, the, sage's, the sage dialogues with another character in his book. Um, only, uh, uh, sorry, he doesn't. He dialogues with a character, but it, it, it's not a, a true dialogue, obviously. The, 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 the sage never dialogues with anybody in his book. It's always a monologue. But because of the rhetorical questions, he, he's, he's posing these questions to the readers so that they would be engaged to think about it. That's the idea. So only he is talking about what he says about his use of, what we've said rather, about his use of rhetorical questions uh, and engaging his audience, we might assume that he would anticipate what they would say to him. Should they read this? Okay. You say that no one is like the godly wise. Prove it. Show me your thinking and how it is so superior to mine. That's how the believer might ask the question. So the sage uses corrupt government as his case study. And it's something that's really a common denominator in every era. Wouldn't you agree? I think it's the case today for sure. It's brilliant. And here's how it, this works out. You know that it's almost intuitive in fact, I would say it is intuitive for fallen individuals to rebel against any corrupt and abusive authority over them, and eventually defiantly so. That's, that's in human nature, and it would be part of human wisdom. But godly wisdom compels the godly wise to submit to corrupt government instead, something that is counterintuitive Certainly to Americans, that's not the American way, right? Now, we've seen that clearly enough in the rash of violent riots back in 2019 and 2020 before COVID hit. People didn't like the police, so they burned police stations down. People didn't like the memorials to certain individuals, so they tore the statues down. And some people didn't even like the way the city of Seattle was being run, so they started their own city-state inside city, city limits. The Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or CHAZ for short. 
It's no longer a country, by the way. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. It's quite in keeping with human wisdom to rebel against authority. It's intuitive. But let's not think that this is unique to Americans. Certainly not. This is not American wisdom only. It's human wisdom. It's a human problem. And it started in the garden, right? When Adam replaced God's sound wisdom for the satanic one that killed him. Now, rebellion against the God of the Bible is really uh, for every person without exception born in this world and lives outside of a covenant relationship with him. It's true of everyone. And one's rebellion against God is manifest in rebellion against authority, whether it's corrupt or not. Well, it's in the context of the rebelliousness of man that godly wisdom shines a bright light shines. It advocates something much different, something completely opposite, counterintuitive. And it's specifically submission to God-ordained authority. And here are the three good reasons for submission that the sage gives in verses 2 to 9. First reason is that God has established government by his solemn word. Read in verse 2, only the king's command, I say, I'm sorry, obey the king's command, I say, because the oath of God. Now, the New American Standard understands the subject, uh, the subject of, uh, of the king as the, as the subject of the oath. It reads this way, because you took an oath before God. In other words, you subjects, you need to obey the king because you took an oath before God. Um, they promised to submit to him. But God could also be the subject of the oath in the Hebrew uh, verse. The grammar would suggest either one. And if God is the subject of the oath, that means that God established government by his solemn word. The sage wrote at a time, you need to understand, where there were no more Israelite kings. But he may have had them in mind. For example, Israel certainly believed that God established and sanctioned the Davidic throne with a covenant promise, and that's that it would rule and its rule would have no end. Israel also believed that God appointed their kings to the throne, Psalm 2. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. You are my son. Today I have fathered you. Ask it of me, and I will certainly give the nations as your inheritance and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. This was to kings. Of course, the fullest application of that would be the Messianic king, Christ himself. There's an interesting reference to this in Proverbs 24, verses 21 and 22. The advice from the godly sage there is this. My son, fear the Lord and the king. Do not get involved with those of high rank, for their disaster will rise suddenly. And who knows the ruin that can come from both of them. That is both the Lord and the king. The Lord protects the king. The Lord sanctions the king. The king acts as a representative of God. Now, I have understood the sage of Ecclesiastes to be referring to God's solemn word to establish his king. 
even though in each case that he did, many of them turned out to be corrupt. We know that. Now, the same is true of modern government as well. No matter what form it takes and how corrupt it is, it is nevertheless God-ordained. And those who are born from above the Son believe that God has established government by his word, and that firm conviction prevents them from rushing to rebel against it. We read in first half of verse 3, Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. The idea is to desert the king, to walk out in a huff in defiance, and also of his law and his governing authority. Worldly wisdom would be hasty to do this. It could come to a point where push comes to shove, and they turn on their heels, and they act defiantly. But godly wisdom says, no, no, stay where you are. Obey those over you and trust yourself to God. Their conviction of this truth would also prevent them, certainly, from conspiring for the demise of their authority. Rest of verse 3 reads, Do not stand up for a bad cause, for the king will do whatever he pleases. The bad cause points to insurrection. That's the context. Regardless if the authority is corrupt or not, It's still a rebellion against God's established authority. And as Romans 13 reminds us, rebellion against God's established authority is rebellion against God himself. According to verse 4, the godly's conviction also keeps him from developing a sinful and all-consuming defiant disposition. That's usually how it happens with people. They They start to boil and seethe, and then it just builds up and builds up and builds up. It says, since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Can you imagine? In the ancient world, and really in any operational monarchy, no court official would ever dare question the king's motives or plans without taking his life in his hands. Principle for us is not that it is wrong to question authority. There is a proper time and place for that, as we'll see in a moment. Rather, this kind of questioning, in the sage's example, smacks of a rebellious spirit. An all-consuming, sinful, and defiant position, a disposition, even if it's directed to foolish authority. We would see this caution working out today in any way or in the way, I should say, that people bypass legal and proper means of protest to use violence to get their point across and strong-arm a change. Second reason that God promises, or the, the second reason we should submit, rather, is because God promises to work for our good in it. His sovereign care is evident. One thing that we saints know to be true about our great God is that he tailors our trials for us with the promise that he will work them for our good. That's 1 Corinthians 10.13 and Romans 8.28 and 29. A part of working bad situations out for our good uh, is when we receive God's blessing as a result of obeying him in the midst of these trials. So according to the uh, the first part of verse 5, when we obey authority, even corrupt authority, we reap the positive consequences of that, which in this case means we stay out of trouble. Whoever obeys this command will keep, will come 
to no harm. That's what the sage says. Whoever obeys this command will come to no harm. In the second part of verse 5, we see that the godly wise teaches us, or godly wisdom teaches us, how to anticipate that trouble. And the wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. When we obey authority, even corrupt authority, we show wisdom and we avoid needless suffering. I say needless because there is suffering that we should endure for righteousness' sake. And here's where we go in a little bit of a different direction. In verse 6, we have two examples of this. The sage says, For there is a proper time and a procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighted down by misery. One matter would be suffering unjust treatment at the hands of a corrupt government because, as Christians, we refuse to compromise our principles. And by the way, this is not just with government. It could be anybody in authority. We refuse to lie or to act corruptly or to break the law for our boss, for whomever is an authority over us. And we experience his wrath. A more severe situation would be civil disobedience. Godly wisdom knows that there is a time to pursue a righteous cause and how to do that as well in the midst of a corrupt and godless government. Uh, these cases both fit into Peter's reference, I think, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20, to, the suffering, uh, to, to suffering the consequences of, of obedience to God. Did you catch that? I said suffering the consequences of our obedience to God. Not suffering the consequences of disobedience, but suffering the consequences of our obedience to God. A lot of Christians in America are much more fearful of that than they are of suffering the consequences of their disobedience. Isn't that interesting? Here's what Peter says. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? Interestingly, a rhetorical question. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. Civil disobedience can certainly weigh down the godly wise with misery. Lots of stuff can happen to us if we stand against civil authority. The corrupt governing authorities see this as a threat to their agenda and they will punish but we need to remember that to suffer for Christ in this way finds favor with God. Something else that, that human wisdom finds counterintuitive. In all this, we wait for God. We be, we're patient. We, we know the proper time, the proper procedure to obey and, if necessary, disobey government when to obey them is sin against God. That is the only reason we should be prepared to commit civil disobedience. The Christian gladly receives then persecution, entrusts himself to God's sovereign care, and he believes that he will find favor with God in this. Jesus is the divine role model here for us, surely. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 to 23, Peter tells us, Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example, so that you would follow in his steps. 
He who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth, and while being abusively insulted, he did not insult in return. While suffering, he did not threaten, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. A third reason that we need to submit to government is that we know that God's ultimate and sovereign rule is behind it. Right? We know really who is in charge. Here's a truth that we should, we should not be shy to explain to our unbelieving listeners. Human government may be the most powerful entity in their lives, and, and I think it is in their lives, but it is still human and therefore very limited. In fact, so are those who want to usurp it at times, <laughs> set up their own authority. They're severely limited as well. Both are severely limited as they rest on their own wisdom. The sage states the obvious that the world seems to forget, that no one, either in government or under it, can predict the future. No one knows the future. Who can tell someone what else, what, 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 someone else what is to come? Rhetorical question. The answer is no one. Another rhetorical question that the sage wants to use to engage his readership. Verse 8 takes this further and assures us that no one has the power to keep his spirit from leaving in death or the time of his death for that matter. Most Bible translators have wind in first half of verse 8. No one can control the wind. But the Hebrew word behind this translation also means spirit. It's ruach, which is more likely in light of the next phrase having to do with death and its obvious connection to it. So I see the entire phrase referring to death. In the second half of verse 8, no one has the power to avoid, uh, or the first half, no one has the power to avoid death. You cannot keep your spirit from leaving your body. You cannot determine when and how you will die. And in the second part of verse 8, no one can avoid the consequences of war or wickedness either. No one is discharged in a time of war, so wickedness will not release those who practice it, the sage says. No king, no president, no prime minister, no government has that kind of power. These inevitable events are known and controlled only by the Lord himself. And we're reminded of that proud declaration of God and his might from Job chapter 12. Job says, he makes the nations great, then destroys them and enlarges the nations, then leads them away. He deprives the leaders of the earth's people of intelligence and makes them wander in a pathless wasteland. They grope in darkness with no light and he makes them stagger like a drunken person. We know that also while bad governments and corrupt authorities may have their own agendas and think that they will succeed, it's really God who determines that. Don't ever forget that. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 1, the king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he pleases. We can go one step further and say that if the godly should suffer for righteousness' sake, they trust God that even that is something he has ordained for their good. 
According to verse 9, the sage witnesses all this human suffering and ignorance as he applied his understanding to everything in life. And he concluded that there are times, certainly, when authority will become abusive and hurt those it governs. It will. And we're ready. We're ready to show the unbelieving world. No matter how upstanding a citizen you are, there are wicked people in high places that couldn't care less about you and will lord their elected power over you to your hurt. But in that instance, beloved Christian victims know God is behind it even still. And what corrupt government meant for evil, God means for good. That's what Joseph said, and he lived it. At the close of our study, then, of this wonderful passage, we must ask an important question, and that is, what does the New Testament have to say about our principle? Well, I'm reminded of 1 Peter 3. We've heard it read this morning. And here, in just verses 15 and 16, Peter commands us all, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, but with gentleness and respect. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which they slander, you are slandered, those who disparage your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. Now Peter ties the importance of living for Christ by the wisdom of God in a corrupt world where we are sure to be slandered in all kinds of ways for behavior backed by a good conscience, together with the need to be ready to explain to unbelieving onlookers who watch us closely, who see that our responses of submission and gentleness and respect are counterintuitive to their way of doing things. The strong implication then of Peter, of this passage, is that our righteousness and wise actions will certainly draw questions about our lifestyle and our worldview. And we need always to be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks us to give them an account for the hope that we have. Are you ready? Father, we thank you for this time together and for this special word that you have given us, that you have preserved down through the centuries, Ecclesiastes 8, that we might read them, that we might be emboldened in our faith to live Christ to the world. We pray that each person here will not shy away from confessing Christ publicly, from living Christ to the world in his and her stations of life, being prepared and ready anticipating, in fact, questions that will come uh, that have to do with the reason why we believe the way we do and why we live the way we, we do. And Father, may we be ready to give the answer, a crisp and accurate biblical answer that will exalt Christ and will demonstrate the hearer's need for him. We pray that as we do, we will depend on your grace, for we believe it to be sufficient. And we do so for your glory and for your honor and for the benefit of our church.
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.